Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace for the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel, from Franklin to the nations of the world, all for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Good morning, church. Try that again. Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here. I'm Pastor Randy Lovelace, and I serve here as pastor, and I'm grateful to say I am not preaching this morning. So we have the blessing of being in an area in a presbytery of the National Presbytery with an embarrassment of riches. We have many who are able to bring God's word, and this morning we welcome for the first time to the pulpit here at Christ Community, Reverend Britton Wood. He serves as area coordinator for Reformed University Fellowship, which is the college ministry of the PCA. He has served as a campus minister, but now serves as area coordinator for Tennessee and for Alabama. He and his wife, Elizabeth, have a very busy life with four daughters, Mary, Shelby, Britton, and Catherine. So you know how to pray for Britton and Elizabeth. But we are grateful to have you here with us, bringing us to Psalm 112. Thank you, Britton. Come on. It's good to be with y'all. One detail Randy left out. um, All four of my daughters are in high school, and uh, two of them are 18, and two of them are 16. Um, So it it is very, very busy. We have a lot of fun two sets of identical twins. I'm usually known as the dad with the twins. That's uh, how I'm known. Uh, And as far as uh, maybe you're familiar with RUF or not, it's actually the campus ministry of the PCA, which is the denomination that Christ Community is a part of. And as an area coordinator, the main thing I do is make sure pastors have health insurance. And right now you're thinking, I didn't know I was going to get to take a nap during the sermon, but they just, the church wanted to give you that gift today. No, but um, before that, I served as a campus minister on a couple of campuses, and it's exciting to be here now. I've been in Nashville for the last couple of years serving in this role. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 112. Uh, the book of Psalms is the hymn book and the prayer book given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And if you're not a person, I'm not a person that likes reading other people's prayers. And if you're like that, where you're like, I can't pray other people's prayers, uh, that's okay. I remember one time when my girls were younger when they said, Dad, I don't like to pray other people's prayers. And I just said, well, do you like to sing? And they're like, I love to sing. And I was like, great, same thing. So that's what we're gonna do is we're going to read uh, one of the prayers given to God's people. This is a wisdom psalm, a prayer about wisdom. There are a lot of different genres of psalms. And in a wisdom psalm, they always contrast two ways of living. Um, And that contrast always functions as an invitation held open to any and everyone to embrace the way of wisdom. And what's also unique about this psalm, last thing I'll say, then we'll read it, is most psalms praise and celebrate God. And this psalm will start, start with praising God, but what the bulk of this psalm goes on to do is actually to celebrate the life of the godly man or woman. And any parent will tell you 
that a parent is absolutely delighted when their children are celebrated. So it does not somehow steal glory from God when we sing celebrating godliness in the life of his people. He is also pleased by that. So let's consider Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. His righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He's gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously in limbs, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever, and his horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees all this and is angry, gnashes his teeth, and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word, we need you to teach us. We need you to do work in our hearts. We need you to sow these seeds. Father God, we long, everyone longs to be unafraid of bad news. And I pray now as we consider the life of the godly man who has that, you would teach us your ways. Be with us in your name we pray. Amen. So why Psalm 112? The reason I chose Psalm 112 is because Life is a lot like CrossFit. And CrossFit, if you're not familiar with what that is, that means you're a healthy, well-adjusted person. (laughs) What CrossFit is, is it's a place where early middle-aged men go deal with their own mortality because they don't know how to put it into words. And as a CrossFit trainer myself, I can tell you there are only two types of CrossFitters in the world. There's only two kinds. There are the CrossFitters who are injured, like I am right now, I have a torn shoulder labrum. And then there are CrossFitters that are about to be injured. (laughs) And likewise, there are only two types of people in the world. There are people here today that are dealing with bad news and people that are going to deal with bad news soon. And I'm drawn to this psalm over and over again because of verse seven, because it says that thing, this person described in the psalm, he is not afraid of bad news, and I want to know what's the key to that. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. That's a big deal, to not be afraid of bad news. We can call it being resilient, right? The ability to be stable and unafraid when the inevitable bad news does come because there's only two types of people in this room right now. There are people who are dealing with bad news presently and people who will soon enough. And so for that reason, I want to look at three different things as we work our way through the psalm. What is at the heart or the root of this resilient person that's being described? So what's inside of them? what happens in their life, what goes out from them, and then how to get in on it. 
So what's at the root? What's inside of them? This is the first verse. What kinds of things happen in their life? And then how to get in on it. So you can think of it as the root and then the fruit and then how to participate in this. So what are the internal conditions of this blessed man? What's going on on the inside? What do they care about and think about all the time? And the first verse tells us, it tees it up for us. It says, blessed is the man who does two things, fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. Fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. Think about that, the two kind of fundamental emotions, right? Or, or kind of affections, the things you fear and the things you love. Really tell us who we are, the things we fear and who we love. And this man fears the Lord and loves his commandments. So what is fear of the Lord? Let's talk about that for a second. When you read scripture, the fear of the Lord has a lot of positive things associated with it. In Proverbs, it tells us fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that it's the fountain of life, that it's better than great wealth, that his mercy is on those who fear them, that if you have, if you fear the Lord, you will be satisfied, all good things. But also in scripture, the fear of the Lord has some uncomfortable things associated with it. Matthew 10 says, Don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul. All throughout the Old Testament, Moses trembles in the presence of the Lord at the burning bush and at Mount Sinai. So did Ezekiel, so did Joshua, so did Paul, so did John, so did Peter. So fear of the Lord also has some kind of element of terror, because when people encounter the presence of the Lord in Scripture, they, they often fall down, they often hide, they're often afraid for their lives. But, it, but it's something more than just dread or terror because it's something that also gives life and is cause for rejoicing. And the fear of the Lord has these kind of two elements to it. The first element is it's something about when you encounter something bigger than you that you realize you can't control. Whatever that feeling looks like, that's getting at the fear of the Lord, right? Maybe you've heard it compared, I've heard it compared to a great storm or tornado or hurricane. The moments in life when you actually reach the limits of your own strength that you realize no matter how safe you've made yourself and no matter how much risk you've mitigated in your life and the life of your children, that moment you realize they're just powers bigger than you that will have their way with you. So it gets at that feeling a little bit, if you remember that feeling, how it feels when you're faced with a power bigger than you. But secondly, the fear of the Lord is different from the fear of a storm or a house fire because those things don't have an opinion of you. They're impersonal. They don't have a disposition. And so there's a dread because you never know if you're safe or not, right? A cancer cell and a storm don't have an opinion about you that determines how they may or may not treat you. But on the other hand, God is a person, which means he has an opinion about us. Means he has a disposition toward us. The fear of the Lord is about being undone by apprehending his supreme power relative to our fragility. And also, it's about being undone by his character, by the type of person that he is. That's why we rejoice with trembling, right? 
Often preachers compare it to the way Aslan is described in Narnia, you know, that he is not safe, but he is good. Here's another image that I think gets at it. If you've ever seen a toddler respond to their father when their father roars, if you've ever played with your kids that way or seen a father play with his kids that way, I've seen a child when their father raises up and roars, the toddler is frightened and runs toward his dad right? He encounters his dad's power, but rushes toward his dad in order to deal with the unsettling awe because he knows his dad's love. I think that captures a little bit of what it means when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, because everything else in life that can harm us, the way you deal with all the other things in life that can harm us is you build barriers between those things and you, right? And you run from those things, but God's the opposite. You avoid the terror of his power by running toward him. By discovering at the cross that his power and his love meet to fear the Lord is what it feels like when you begin to apprehend both his power and his holiness, but also his mercy and his love together at the same time. Everyone here fears something. And everything else that we fear in the world besides the Lord exasperates our anxiety. But when you fear the Lord, you discover freedom. The happy man fears the Lord. So that's one aspect of the internal life of this resilient person. They fear the Lord. And then secondly, they delight in God's commands. And delight is probably not the first word we naturally think of when we think about God's rules, the rules in Scripture. Right? Because maybe you just think duty. Maybe you just think heavy. Maybe you think shame. Maybe at best we just think tries to obey God's commands. But that's not what the psalmist says. He says delight. He's actually saying we really like and enjoy trying to obey the commands. Maybe it's the last thing we would ever think when we think about the moral law of God actually enjoying it. But I want you to consider for a moment that maybe we really haven't understood what the law is. Think about this for a second. Relationships, and I'm talking about any relationship, relationships are sets of rules. That's what a relationship is. To have any relationship is simply to use that word, that is a word that simply implies I have rules of behavior between me and another person. So for years, I was in college ministry, and students always want to talk about difficulties with their parents or their friends or their roommate or whatever it is. And when they talked about those difficulties, what they did is they talked about what the other person said or did, right? My roommate stays up all hours of the night, right? My parents made me play soccer and do tons of CrossFit in high school. That's what my children are gonna have to talk about with their campus minister, (laughs) right? But what they're doing is they're saying, I have this relationship called a roommate relationship and without ever actually acknowledging it, what they're saying is there are certain rules appropriate for that behavior and if we observe those rules, we enjoy the relationship and my roommate's not observing the rules. Anytime you complain about any person, what you're saying is they're not following the rules of the relationship because relationships are rules and rules are relationships, right? Any frustration we voice is saying our barista 
and our doctor and our teacher and our coach and our mom and our dad and our sister and our brother and our pastor are not observing the rules that are proper for that relationship, right? The enjoyment in a relationship is unlocked when the proper rules governing that relationship are observed. Delight is destroyed when you betray the rules of that relationship. So let's get back. What does it mean that it delights in his commands? It's something very different than trying to obey rules you don't really like for an impersonal authority that you don't really know so that you can just kind of avoid being in trouble. That's exhausting and frustrating. And it actually can create people who are well-behaved but very upset and insecure. But rather, delighting in his commands That's when you do something because you enjoy how it will make another person, friend, parent, child, romantic interest, even stranger happy. You're delighting in the behaviors that properly please another person. You're observing the codes that not only respect and make life work, but it actually makes you happy. That's what the psalmist is talking about when he's talking about delighting in the law of the Lord. Doing things that make the people you love happy is just one of the best things, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. So this resilient person on the inside, here's what they fear. They fear the Lord. Here's what they love. They love his commands. So what is the fruit? What then happens in the life of this resilient person? Three things, prosperity, stability, generosity. Prosperity, stability, generosity. First, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation, the, the, the following children of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. His righteousness endures forever. It's true that the one who fears the Lord and loves his commands are children. They have a will of their own, but they're also shaped by what their parents fear and love. And it is a blessing, and we are passing on the strength of the Lord when our children are shaped by a home and in a community where we fear the Lord and we love his commands. It's not a guarantee that things won't go awry in the lives of our children. You can look at David's own children. But it's still good. And our children are shaped by what we love. He also talks about Wealth and riches are in his house. In the Old Testament, promised prosperity like that and the promised land to which they would have connected those words, they were always sacramental, meaning they're not less than actual real estate in the Middle East and some gold, but actually more than that. It always meant more than that, meaning the geographic land of Zion was always pointing towards something more. It was always just a stand-in or a picture or an illustration of the new heavens and the new earth made new again, pointing toward the scenes of Revelation 21, when everything sad comes untrue, when we will feast together again in the house of Zion, where there are tears and weeping no more, and injustice and poverty are done away with. Even a few verses later, the psalm acknowledges that bad news comes into the life of this person. But the hymn says, fading is the worldly pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's members know. The longing we have for a little bit more material comfort, prosperity, security, 
It's never enough. We all know that, the little bit more we want. And C.S. Lewis actually proposes that the problem with that longing that we have is not that it's too strong, it's actually that it's too weak. That the kind of prosperity that Scripture sets forward is better found and discovered in Revelation 21 more than anywhere else. It invites you to have the courage to look on a further horizon to a day of solid joys and lasting treasure at the right hand of God. That's the kind of prosperity the psalmist is talking about. Prosperity, but secondly, stability. This is the one that I've thought on the most. The upright knows that the light is going to dawn in the darkness. He will not be moved. He will not be afraid when the bad news comes. His heart is steady, and he knows that he'll triumph over his enemies. Why does the fear of the Lord have the capacity to make us unflappable and unafraid for the rest of life? And I think it's actually pretty simple. Jesus gave us profound wisdom when he commends us to look to children to understand the life of faith. And I actually think nine-year-old boys understand this principle more than anybody else in this room. Because I remember being in elementary school and being on the receiving end of some bullying. And I absolutely remember Addressing the bully with, yeah, but my dad can beat up your dad. (laughs) And I said it just as much to assure myself as it did to address the bully. I'm saying I might not be big, but I'm with someone bigger than you. And the reason that the person who fears the Lord and loves his law is unafraid and immovable and steady and sure in the face of bad news is because you can look at the circumstances of life, the bad news and the darkness and your enemies, and you can say, but my dad can beat up your dad. When the Bible talks about being children, it just means a child is not embarrassed, but actually intuitively understands that they live lives of dependence. They know that they're not strong enough and competent enough to handle what life is going to bring to them. Children know that instinctively. That's why they might be a little bit spiritually healthier than us. A child is not embarrassed, but is actually proud to let his dad's strength stand in for him to say that I am strong because my dad is stronger and I am confident and I am unafraid because my dad is strong. Stability in the face of darkness in the face of bad news, resilience when facing enemies, it is not the product of the accrual of health and wealth and status and education and powerful friends. All of those things are ultimately powerless against the enemies we all have, Christian or non-Christian alike in this room, the ultimate enemies are sin and death, the evil in us, in others, and the death coming for us. And everything you can get in this world is powerless against those things. No one here is safe. None of us are. There are two types of people here, people dealing with bad news and people about to. You can only be unafraid 
if your dad is stronger, and he is. He is stronger than the bullies. He is stronger than your illness. He is stronger than your family. He is stronger than nations and political parties, and he's stronger than the markets, and he is stronger than our sin, and he is stronger than death. My dad can beat up your dad. This man is prosperous. He's stable. Lastly, he's generous. There's no more obvious thing that happens in the life of those who have found safety in the Lord than generosity. Generosity, because we're generous with the things we use to trust for our safety, right? He deals generously in lens. He's fair. He doesn't seek his own advantage in his dealings. He distributes freely and gives to the poor, right? Our trust and our safety and confidence was in the power that we were accumulating for ourselves. And money is nothing more than power in its most liquid form. You're safe in Jesus now. That means you get to reallocate the resources that you're using to give you a sense of safety and security for something else, like reflecting the heart of God to the world, which is just being generous, right? You don't have to use your money to make you feel safe and comfortable and secure. The resurrection has already done that. There's no more obvious evidence that someone trusts in the Lord than they become joyfully and wastefully open-handed with the things that we used to trust in Generosity is one of the most logical outcomes of trust in the Lord. So let's follow, let's, let's close by talking about how then do we get in on this? Sounds good. Fear the Lord, love his law. <clears throat> Become prosperous, stable, and generous. Well, I didn't tell you at the beginning, but we cheated because Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 go together. We just read Psalm 112. They're actually twins. They mirror each other. They're often read together in the life of Israel. And when you read Psalm 111 and then Psalm 12, something's very clear. What happens in Psalm 11 is all of the virtues that describe the person who trusts the Lord in Psalm 111, they're first used to describe the Lord. They're parallels of each other. They're acrostics. They Grammatically, the way they line up, there are 10 verses, there are 22 phrases, they have identical words and themes in the same places. And what Psalm 111 does is it celebrates the righteous God. And then, after that, Psalm 112 celebrates the righteous life of his follower. And Psalm 111 actually ends. By setting up Psalm 112, it says, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and those who seek to follow his commands understand, praise God, which is exactly how Psalm 112 starts. Before the life of this resilient and righteous and gracious man is sung about, before that, the righteous and gracious God is sung about. His righteousness endures forever. He's gracious and merciful. He's faithful and just. We can only begin to grow into who God has called us to be by having first encountered God as he is. Before we're righteous, before we're gracious and merciful, before we're just, he is first all of those things toward you. God's work, his love, his grace, his faithfulness, his kindness always, always precedes and empowers ours. The way the reformer Martin Luther said this is, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it.
The love of God doesn't find, but actually creates that which is pleasing to it. He is not in search of someone worthy of his love, looking to see if we pass scrutiny. Rather, his love comes freely, and his love, freely given, begins to reshape us into his image. Before you can live into the character of the righteous and resilient, stable and generous and free person, John teaches us we love because he first loved us. You become stable and generous by coming to fear the Lord and delight his commands, but you, but you don't even come to fear the Lord and his delight in his commands by saying, all right, here's what I'm gonna do today. I'm gonna do better at fearing the Lord and delighting in his commands. Fear and delight are both reactions. They're responses. You can't manufacture them from within. You have to react from a stimulus outside, right? They're not things that are, they're not things that arise from within you by just desiring to fear the Lord and delight in his commands. Rather, you come to fear the Lord and then delight in his commands by encountering him, by encountering him as he reveals himself to us, and he has chosen to make us himself known to us in his word. And as John reminds us, when he begins his gospel, his word was God and his word was with God because Jesus is his word, himself fully revealed in human form in his son Jesus. The God of creation humbles himself to wash the feet of his friends. The God who shook Mount Sinai and terrified Moses is also the one that Paul describes making himself nothing and becoming a servant to the littlest and to the least. The one that is worth fearing above all else chose to be stripped and take on the shame of the cross, forgiving us to restore him to himself. We've sung about it already. And, and y'all, forgiveness, you don't understand it if you, you only understand it and you've only tried it if you realize it's the worst. It's the worst. If you've ever tried to forgive, you'll realize it's the worst because trying to forgive is the person right now, all of us can think of, that we have just cause to really hate and wish bad things on, just cause. It's refusing to seek justice and instead absorbing the pain of that. It's the worst. And it's his delight to give it to us. Removing our sin, not asking us to bear the penalty, to pay the price, but bearing it himself. We love because he first loved us. And we inch toward fearing him and delighting in his law, inch by inch becoming a little more sure of his riches, a little more secure of the promised resurrection, a little more stable and a little more generous because... He is all those things for us and to us first. Another way I think little boys teach us about the life of faith is this. One last lesson from 10-year-old boys. Um, For all time in the sport of basketball, the greatest jersey number is unequivocally 23. We know that. And when I was growing up, On any sports team, any basketball team, every kid, every team, it was a fight over who got to be number 23. Because when you put on number 23, the reason you put it on is because you felt like you were putting on a little Michael Jordan. He's the goat, 
It's not a debate. I don't want to have a debate about LeBron. <laughs> you LeBron people out there, you're wrong. It's okay. Pastor Randy will handle this with you afterwards. <laughs> but when you're a little kid, you wanted his number and you would put on his number. Maybe some of us adults still do it too. Because you were transfixed by his fire and his skill and his grace and his drive and his charisma, and you wanted to pretend like you were him. You observed the glory of the goat and then pretended like you were him too, right? It didn't matter that your imitation of him was pitiful. It was the joy of having taken in greatness and then out of sheer delight, running out and trying to emulate it for fun. That's a lot of what's going on when the psalmist first celebrates the powerful and the righteous and the promise-keeping and the generous and the merciful God and then celebrates the one who having encountered God's righteousness and his mercy tries to put it on for fun. You don't even have to be good at it. And in fact, when you're doing it for fun, because the one who has been gracious and generous towards you captures your imagination, you won't even be anxious about your mediocrity at it. It'll still be fear and delight manifesting itself in stability and generosity, but you won't even be insecure about the fact that you're not even that good about it because you're being doing it for fun because you encounter greatness and you wanna try it out. To grow into the stable and generous follower, all you have to do is come and let him show you who he is at this table today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. This is things that we wish we were, stable, generous, prosperous, things we're working towards, whether we're Christians or not things we desire, you put these desires in us. But you also have given us the answer and the power in yourself and in your son, Jesus. So I pray now as we take these words to heart and as we come to your table, that we would encounter not something in us trying to be better at these things, but we would encounter you and you would begin to change us. In your name we pray, amen.